Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. We're looking at the mark of a true church. The mark of a true church. Another title I I thought about uh, as well was Confronting One Another in Love. That's what this passage is about, the mark of a true church. I want to start by asking you a question. Why is the church, some of the church, so weak and ineffective? Why is some of the church so weak and ineffective? Yes, of course, God is alive, He's powerful, and of course the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. And God is alive and working all around the world, and the gospel is spreading. But in places like New Zealand, it's slow going, isn't it? It's hard work, hard ground, not much fertile soil, spiritually speaking. Why is that? Well, I think one of the reasons is for what Carl Laney says in his book, A Guide to Church Discipline. Here's what he says. See if you agree with this. I quote, The church today is suffering from an infection which has been allowed to fester. As an infection weakens the body by destroying its defense mechanisms, so the church has been weakened by this ugly sore. The church has lost its power and effectiveness in serving as a vehicle for social, moral, and spiritual change. This illness is due at least in part to a neglect of church discipline. End quote. As with most things, there's pendulum swings. One of the pendulum swings is, is the one that Carl Laney was talking about there. There is neglect. We can neglect church discipline. We can swing way over to that. And much of the church around the world doesn't ever practice church discipline. Uh, this probably doesn't happen too much, but the other pendulum swing can swing the other direction. And there's severity where, where church discipline is, is practiced probably too much. And when it is, there's no love. And neither one of those pendulum swings is what God wants us to do, and we need to be aware of both of those. The balance certainly is somewhere in the middle. But as we think about church discipline, a popular question that's often thrown in the face of the biblical church is this. Who gave the church the right to call somebody a sinner? (laughs) You ever had that? Uh, You know, people wondered, well, hey, you know, didn't Jesus say, judge not lest you be judged? You ever had that thrown back in your face? Even from unbelievers. Judge not. You know, they never go to church, but they know Matthew 7, verse 1 really well. And they'll use it against you every time they can. And of course, they're ripping it out of context when they do that. Of course, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. You'll find that in Matthew 7, 1. But what's the point of Matthew chapter 7 there? I mean, what does that actually mean? Does this mean that a church should never call a sinner a sinner? Is the church never to point a finger and call sin a sin? Is is that what it means? No, of course not. In fact, you look at the context of Matthew 7, 1, just the very next verse that says judge. So that's not what it, it doesn't say never judge, never call sin a sin. In Matthew 7, you need to understand that Jesus is teaching that it's, it's wrong to judge when the act of Judging becomes a display of our (laughs) self-righteousness. That's the point. Don't let it be a display of your self-righteousness. He's referring to a type of 
judgmentalism that's typical of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, particularly those Pharisees, very, very self-righteous people. So the Lord was speaking to Pharisees, who were well known for their critical attitudes of judgmentalism. They love to expose people in their sin. They love to embarrass the sinner. And anybody like Jesus who dared to eat in the presence of a sinner was condemned as well. Remember, Jesus was often called the friend of sinners. People like tax collectors. Whoa, Gentiles. Well, loving confrontation is one of the most important parts in the life of a healthy church. Notice I said in the life of a healthy church, loving confrontation is part of that. It's something that should be happening every week in every church around the world. Why would Jesus tell us to do this? Well, there, there's two main reasons you would find in Matthew, or sorry, Ephesians 5. The, the primary concerns that Jesus had was for his body to be pure and to be unified. So, so church discipline helps in, this, in, the, in the church being unified and pure. Now, neither of those can exist where the process of Matthew 18 is not practiced. Okay? Matthew 18 will help us to be unified and help us to be pure. And that's because the obstacles of Pure, the, or I should say, the, the obstacles to purity and unity are sin and conflict. The greatest problem we have, of course, is sin. And if you think of that as a, as a disease, a disease needs to be cured, right? If you had a disease, if you were sick, most likely you're not just going to sit around and do nothing. You do something about it, right? Go to a doctor or go get some medicine or something to help cure that disease. And so the disease of sin can be cured. It's not hopeless. But the way to cure the the disease of sin is through biblical, loving confrontation. It's the way God has designed it. Problems will never be solved by ignoring them. You can't just do the, the proverbial phrase of sweep it under the rug. You know, out of sight, out of mind. That doesn't work with sin. It doesn't work. Uh, in fact, you may have heard this saying, and you tell me, is this true? I put it up here for you. Does time heal all wounds? Now, most of you are shaking your heads no. You haven't found that to be true in your life, have you? I haven't. Time does not heal all wounds. In fact, you probably remember stuff even as, as a child. Somebody maybe abused you verbally, and you still remember, and it hurts deeply. Hopefully you're not bitter, and hopefully you've, you know, you've forgiven that person if they've confessed their sin to you. Of course this isn't true. Time doesn't heal all wounds. Spiritual wounds, in fact, can harden into so-called scabs, and they, they might scar. But those harmful consequences inevitably continue unless there is true healing that's occurring in your life. The loving confrontation that we're going to discuss can and does perform healing when it's practiced in a biblical manner. Now, notice, we we need to do it lovingly. Uh, The Bible does talk about speaking the truth in love. So it's important to do both of those. They do go hand in hand. So I want us to look at Matthew 18 to see what the, the Bible says about this mark of a true church. Look at Matthew 18, verse 15. 
Jesus says this, if your brother, and you could insert sister there as well, if your brother or sister in Christ sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. But I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus tells us in this passage that the solution to sin and the solution to conflict is to ignore it, right? Is that what he says? <laughs> no, of course not. Does he, tell, does he tell you to burn the person at the stake? You know, is that what he, no, he didn't say that either. You know? So neglect and severity are not the options that Jesus is giving us here. He tells us to confront. And this confrontation, this loving confrontation, is, is to keep progressing if the sinner does not repent of their sin. It's to continue to whatever level is necessary. And, and this is for the purpose of bringing about restoration. It's to bring about change in this person. Now, many people think it's unloving to rebuke sin, right? <laughs> oh, don't, just, just leave the person as they are. Leave me alone, or whatever. They think it's unloving to rebuke sin in somebody else's life. But the Bible says elsewise, to the contrary, that the Bible teaches that confrontation is actually, in fact, one of the best ways that you can love somebody. If you don't believe that, I'll just show you a few verses here to hopefully convince you otherwise. I want you to consider these verses. These, the, the, and what I want you to see in these verses is this complementary relationship between love and confrontation. It is loving to confront, according to what God says. All right, look at this. Psalm 141, verse 5 says this. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Psalm 9, verse 8. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Psalm 27, verse 5. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So, as I've heard Wisely, from my own pastor, he warned me a long time ago, beware of the flatterer. That's, that's what Psalm 27 is saying. Beware of the flatterer, because the flatterer is your worst enemy. Flatter is your worst enemy. Your friend is the one who is willing to come and rebuke you, to confront you in your sin. That's how you know a real friend. All right. So if you want to be a real friend, you need to lovingly confront people. All right? Hebrews 12, this is what it says about God. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, 
nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. So, hopefully you're convinced, just a few verses in Scripture there, that love and confrontation go hand in hand. They are a complementary relationship. And so my prayer is that you're going to truly believe that loving confrontation is an essential element of every healthy church. It's an essential element of your life and our our community amongst believers. It should be second nature for every member to receive as well as give admonition on a regular basis. It should be normal. Formative discipline should be taking place every week in our church. Hopefully not corrective discipline. <laughs> that's, that's the final part. But formative discipline should be regularly taking place. Now we need to be very careful in this whole process, okay? Uh, because confrontation can be practiced wrong, right? It, in, in fact, it often is. And I, unfortunately, I can think of examples in my past where confrontation or biblical uh, church discipline wasn't actually practiced biblically. They, we, we did not actually follow what God says here in Matthew 18. So we need to be careful. It can be practiced in a wrong way. And we can actually make the problem worse rather than actually solving the problem. And, and of course, when that's done, you often end up driving the person away or making them very, very bitter. So as we look at this, I know a lot of people often ask, you know, hey, am I my brother's keeper? I mean, is this really my responsibility? Or is it just the elders of the church that are supposed to do this? <laughs> you might be sitting there thinking, oh, man, this, this, oh, man, this is one of these messages that I just hate. This hurts. I mean, is this really my duty and my responsibility? Well, if you look at Matthew 18, verse 15, it should be pretty obvious. I want you to notice, and I've put it up here on the screen for you in case you've missed it. I want you to notice the Holy Spirit is using first-person singular pronouns. Now, if you don't know your grammar, the point in me telling you that is, is, is this. It is your duty, it is your responsibility. And the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to miss it, and I've put them in bold, I've underlined them for you. It is your responsibility to lovingly confront your brother and sister Jesus says that if you know that another Christian has sinned, or if you have sinned, uh, or if you've been sinned against by another Christian, then you need to confront that person about the problem, about that sin. It's your responsibility. So it's it's not right for us to turn a blind eye. It's not right for us to, you know, you know, try to push it out of our minds. It's not right to so-called have a deaf ear to the situation. In fact, you look at uh, in Matthew 18 here, there's several commands. Several commands. Let's see, we got one, two, three, four, five. In five, in fact, there's five commands here. They are in the imperative, in the Greek language. Verse 15, it says, go and tell. That's a command. That's not an option. In verse 16, it says, take. All right? So if the first process doesn't work, then you, you move on. It says, take. That's also a command. If that doesn't work... Verse 17 says, tell and let be. That's also, those are also commands, not options. And the point is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. 
you are your brother's keeper. And so when we realize our responsibility to talk with others about their problems, many times there's questions that are going to come to our mind. And guess what? Jesus answers these questions. Scripture answers these questions for us. Here's maybe some of the questions that might come to your mind. Number one, should I confront any Christian who sins or or just those whom I know well? Is this applying to all Christians around the world? Ever wondered that? Well, we'll answer that. Another question you might have is, hey, should I confront every sin I know about or just the so-called big ones? As, As if God has a list of big sins you confront and then there's the little sins that you can just ignore. All right, we'll talk about that as well. Another question you might have is, you know, what should be my attitude when, I, when, I'm, when I'm confronting someone? What should be my attitude? Well, that's addressed in Scripture as well. Uh, another question would be, what method can prevent making the problem worse or making the person hate me? Uh, last question we'll address is, uh, in, well, maybe not the last one, but another question we'll address is, because negative outcomes are often possible, why should I even risk confronting someone? It often doesn't go well. <laughs> I've experienced that myself. It often goes bad. Uh, praise God, it doesn't always go bad, but, some, you know, that's just one of those things we have to do what God tells us to do, right? So those questions, and, and of course, more we'll look at and, and answer from Scripture. So, My second question that we'll look at here today is this. Whom should we confront? Hopefully we all understand the first question. You are your brother's keeper. God commands you to do this five times. There's five commands here going through this this process of church discipline. But whom should we confront? Okay, hopefully we understand we're supposed to do this. But who, right? Who? Well, the kind of person that Jesus says we should confront is found in verse 15. Look at verse 15. What does it say? Put your eyeballs on the page. What does Jesus tell you to do? He says, if your brother sins. By the way, that's not your physical blood brother. That's your spiritual brother. That is your, by the way, ladies, this would include sisters in Christ. So ladies, if there's a sister in Christ that sins against you, you need to do deal with that. The, the term brother implies somebody who professes to be a Christian. It identifies that, that person with the community of a biblical church. They, they profess to be a believer in Christ. So it's, it's not just male. Don't think of just male, okay? Um, often we see the word in the Bible called brethren. Uh, that's the idea. Brethren is the term that most commonly used in the epistles to refer to Christians. So that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about Christians, people who profess to be Christians. Well, I want to look at another passage here that sheds some light on whom we should confront. All right? uh, in this particular passage in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's actually telling the church to carry out the final stage, the final step of church discipline. And look what the Bible says here in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. It says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. 
But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a viler, a drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now there's, there's some good things that are helpful there in helping us answer this question of whom should we confront? I want you to notice first that Paul says the process of loving confrontation here is not designed for the immoral people of this world. Okay? It's not your responsibility to go to the brothel, for example, and tell all the ladies there you know, about their sin. That's not the point of this passage. All right? We're talking about people who are so-called brothers and sisters in Christ. Our responsibility is limited to those who claim to be Christians... And, and are actually sharing fellowship with other Bible-believing churches, or in our church. So, well, at this point, some people might be asking this question, hey, what about the unsaved people? All right, in case you, you're missing the point. What about unsaved people? Because Paul is clearly saying in 1 Corinthians 5, only so-called brothers, or, or believers, or Christians. So what about unsaved people? What do we do with them? What's your responsibility to an unbeliever? Hopefully you already know this. Your responsibility is to evangelize them, right? That's your responsibility. You give them the good news of the gospel. Okay? Church discipline is not appropriate for an unbeliever. All right? They don't have Christ. All right? Well, what about those who call themselves Christians, but then they adhere to some false doctrinal system, Right? You know, you might have somebody who goes to some, some cult or sect or whatever. They, they might claim to be a Christian, and they, they might walk up to you and say, Hey, I'm, I'm just like you. I'm a, I'm a believer in Christ. But, but you know that their theology is, is horrible, right? What, what about them? Well, you, you also need to evangelize them, all right? All right? If they, you know, if they don't believe that Jesus is God, for example, then they need to be evangelized. They have a false gospel. So, here's where we've gone so far. Number one, we've seen, right, that you are your brother's keeper. It is your responsibility to be your brother and sister's keeper. All right? We've looked at from Matthew 18, verse 15, that it is your responsibility. You're to go to a brother or a sister, one who is a so-called Christian. Question number three, what sins should, be, should we confront? What sins should you confront with the so-called brother or sister in Christ? Well, Jesus says we should confront our brother if he sins. That's, that's all he says there, right? In verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Jesus nowhere in this passage goes into a detailed list of the sins. He doesn't say it here. So what exactly does he mean by this? Well, uh, the word itself might be helpful. Um, but let me ask you this. Should we confront everything we see in somebody else? Any, anything that, that, that's possibly wrong with that believer? Or, or should we only confront some sins that are the big sins? Now, I've heard people say, 
But you only confront the big sins. Only the specific ones that are mentioned in Scripture, like in 1 Corinthians 5 and other places like that, where, where the Bible actually says, you know, like an immoral person, for example. Is, there, is that the only ones we're to confront? I don't think so. Uh, the broader scope of Scripture indicates that we should confront our brother or sister when he or she commits any action that is forbidden in Scripture and cannot be overlooked. I think I put that up there for you. So, let me try to explain that. Uh, I find that little statement there helpful. That's what I try to live my life by anyway. So, first of all, the Bible doesn't distinguish between serious sins and minor sins. Uh, The Greek word for sin, in Matthew 18, verse 15 there, it's just a general term. It's, it's used for any kind of sin. It's, it's, not, it's not mortal sins or minor sins. No, it's just any kind of sin. Any sins of action should be confronted. Should we confront people's attitudes? What about attitudes? I, I, <laughs> let me just warn you against that, okay? Because... I personally have made a mistake in this area. And I've actually, had to, I've actually had to repent of my sin of confronting people's attitudes before. Because it's only God who can see a person's heart. Okay? So you've got to be really, really careful. All right? you, you might think you know somebody's heart. You might think what their attitude is. But you could be wrong. How can you be 100% sure? And so I, you know, I, you know, I thought somebody's attitude was this and I've you know, I confront them on it, and I've, I've, I've made mistakes in this area, okay? I've had to repent of that sin to that, to that individual when I've done that sort of thing. And, it, and, it, and I've hurt brothers and, and sisters in the process of doing that. So I just warn you, hopefully you can learn from my mistakes, all right? Be very careful. Do not confront attitudes. We're talking about actions here, okay? Only God knows the heart, so we need to, uh, the Bible doesn't distinguish between serious sins and minor sins, all right? That's the first part. The second part I want you to consider is this, that we, we should confront someone only when he or she acts in a way forbidden in Scripture, okay? I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, for example, sins that destroy Christian unity and relationships. Most of the epistles talk about that. That's one of God's great concerns for his church. So anything that's destroying the unity needs to be confronted. Sins that entangle a person in immoral behavior needs to be lovingly confronted. Sins that involve rebellion or rejection of God's word need to be lovingly confronted. All right? those, those are definitely things that need to be lovingly confronted. But at the same time here, I want to be, be crystal clear to you, we need to... Be careful not to confront someone based on a mere preference. Okay? If you're not sure what a preference is, okay, these are things that you think you need to do or not do. Okay? But there's no clear scripture telling you to do or not do that. Those are preferences. Okay? Sometimes we turn the non-essentials into essentials, and we separate, and we divide, and we bite and devour one another over preferences. God says that's sin when we do that. Be careful. Don't do that. I'll, I'll just give you a few examples. All right? 
some of the, one of the most divisive issues in Christendom today is we fight and we devour one another over Bible translations, which is a non-essential. Okay? All right? Okay? You, you might have a strong opinion on that. But that is not the sort of thing we need to lovingly confront someone about. All right? Just because somebody uses a new KJV and somebody else uses a new American Standard let it lie, okay? <laughs> Love that person anyway, even if they have a different opinion than you. Another thing that, that we grew up with is, is, you know, women wearing pants. You know, we would separate from churches who allowed women to wear pants, right? Or, you know, the girls go to a youth activity, they had to wear, you know, couldn't wear pants, right? I mean, even if they went downhill snow skiing, you know, they had to have a dress on. It's like, that's, that's, you know, some people are that way. Thankfully, we're kind of getting away from that, although there is, there is still circles out there doing that sort of thing, all right? That, that's an example of a preference. If somebody feels like they should always wear a skirt or a dress, great. Nothing wrong with that. But the problem is there's an attitude that often comes with it, and they become very, very judgmental of other women who choose to wear pants, all right, that's an example of a preference. All right, those are things we shouldn't divide over. Those are things that you should not confront someone over. It is not a sin. Are we crystal clear on this? All right, I could keep going with many, many preferences that unfortunately Christians fight over and they bite and devour one another and separate, and it's destructive to God's church. So another, a third thing to consider here is it's only necessary to confront sins that cannot be overlooked. 1 Peter 4, verse 8 tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. Right? If, if we took the time to confront every possible sin that another Christian commits, you'd never get anything else done. Whoa! Just think about it. That's all you'd do throughout the week. You'd spend 40 hours a week confronting other people's sins. You'd never get anything done. All right? Use 1 Peter 4.8 as a guide here. Love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, let me give you some examples of sins that can be overlooked, okay? Inconsiderate words and actions. Have you ever said anything inconsiderate? Have you ever done anything inconsiderate? You're, you just weren't thinking? You didn't consider the consequences of what you said. Mouth just opens, words come out, and then you reap the consequences later. Ever happened to you? Yes, every one of you. Okay? <laughs> all right, if you're sitting there all smug and proud and self-righteous, I'll tell you, you've done that. All right? You have had people in your family, in your life, who, where love has covered the multitude of those kind of sins in your life. Thank God for that. All right. How about selfish oversight? Ever done anything selfish? Yeah, again, <laughs> all the time. I, I do it all the time, all right? I just selfish oversight, you know, oblivious to my selfishness a lot of times. Okay? Praise God for a wife who loves me, who can let love cover a multitude of sins. How about prideful thoughts? 
Yeah, again, all the time. These are some examples. Pride is just, I mean, that's, that's who we are. Humility is not natural for us as sinners. So, I mean, that's it's got to take a work of the Holy Spirit to have any moment of humility. So those are some things where love can cover a multitude of sins. However, having said that, uh, how can we know whether to cover or confront in a particular situation? All right? Because sometimes you might be thinking, oh, wait a minute. All right. uh, the, the love is just not covering this particular sin, right? Yeah, so what do you do? Well, growing in biblical love and humility will help you to cover more and more offenses, uh, especially those offenses that are committed against you. Growing in biblical wisdom will also help you to decide, hey, you know, what, what sins should I overlook? Okay, Clearly, not all sins should be overlooked. Jesus says, commands us to not overlook all sins. Uh, someone has said that love covers a multitude of sins, but sometimes sin throws the covers off. And when sin throws the covers off, well, then take that as a work of the Holy Spirit in your life that something needs to be done. So let's just get practical here for a moment. When the following conditions exist, it becomes unloving and wrong to ignore the problem. All right? So in case you're wondering, well, okay, uh, when should I confront? Well, number one, if the sin creates an unreconciled relationship between you and the particular offender... So that you, you just you, you think about it all the time, you think badly about that person, then confrontation is necessary for the sake of unity in the body. Okay? Sometimes love is just not going to cover the sin. All right? In that case, confrontation is needed. All right? Number two, if you're not confident that the person is growing in the direction of Christ's likeness by regularly confessing his sin and working to change, then confronting his sin may be the only way to help him. Okay? Remember, it's not just about you. Hey, sometimes you can let love cover the multitude of sins, but a lot of times you need to confront them to help them. They're out of fellowship with God and, and the body. Number three, if you know there will be consequences of this sin that will hurt others in the offender's life, then for their sake, you, you need to make sure that he has recognized his sin and repented from that sin. Those are some guidelines for you. Question number four. How should we confront? Okay. Hopefully we're convinced, every one of us, if you're a brother or sister in Christ, you have a duty and a responsibility to lovingly confront your brother and sister in Christ. Uh, we've seen to, who's supposed to do this. You know, it, it's, it's a brother. It's, it's the brethren. It's, you're supposed to do this only to professing believers. You're to confront about sin, just sin in general. Sins that you cannot let love cover the multitude of those sins. But how should we confront? I mean, when we know that God wants us to talk to another believer about some problem, that it is essential to approach that confrontation in a biblical manner. There, there are some things that God tells us to do here in Matthew 18 as well as elsewhere in Scripture. Now, we're going to... The, the first four actually come from Matthew 18, and then the other points I want to give you come from outside of Matthew 18, okay? So there's actually ten words 
that, that give us some principles about confrontation here. Number one, you should confront quickly. You should confront quickly. Now, if you look at Matthew 18 here, Jesus doesn't indicate that there's any kind of a, of a time gap between the knowledge of the brother's sin and the confrontation that follows. In fact, if you were to look at the tense of the Greek verb used here, the word go in Matthew 18, 15 implies the exact opposite. In fact, it's in the present imperative. And present means it's just, <laughs> you continually do this. Don't, there, there's no, no indication of any time gap whatsoever. An imperative is a command. You are to be going. Be going. That's how it could be translated. So while a problem is ignored, sin and guilt can actually snowball. It can get, it grow and grow and grow and get worse and worse and, and become an avalanche. It will eventually destroy the sinner himself, could destroy a church, could destroy a family. So loving confrontation is often needed. So the resolution God longs for will not happen until you go. And, and God says you need to go quickly. Don't wait. Don't wait. For example, uh, the conference we were at this past week, uh, the pastor over the last three years has been dealing with five, or sorry, seven, seven, seven different cases of, of adultery, and five out of the seven were, were the women who committed adultery against their husbands. That was, and these were strong families. A lot of times the husbands were oblivious uh, to the fact that their, their wife was texting another man, and you know, that led to other things and so forth, and all right. So if somebody had if somebody had confronted those those women who were texting another man, say, "Hey, that's wrong. You're being unfaithful. Hey, you may not have actually committed the sin of adultery, but nevertheless you're sinning. You're not being faithful to your to the one whom you've committed your life to." Stop. All right? Someone who loves them would do that. So it doesn't lead to other things. How else should we confront? Number 2, do it purposefully. Purposely. Jesus says, go. (laughs) And so by telling us to go, Jesus was saying we should deliberately go to him or her with the intention of talking to that person about the problem. All right? Don't invite the person out to a cafe and and talk about the all blacks. (laughs) That's That's not what you're supposed to do. You talk about the problem. Go purposely. It'd be a good idea, by the way, probably... Maybe set up a time to talk with that person as soon as possible. And maybe even tell the person, hey, here's, here's my intentions for this, this conversation I'd like to have with you. Number three, how should you confront? You need to confront verbally. The Bible says in Matthew 18, verse 15, you need to tell him his fault. That's a command. Tell him. It's not an option. You have to use words in order to tell him. And the ideas were to uh, convince people of something through words. The problem can't be solved by you know, giving him facial expressions. You, know, you ever tried to do that? You know, we as parents try to, yeah, my wife does that to me all the time. You know, some, and sometimes I know, okay, I'm sinning. Okay, I'm sinning. I'm doing something wrong through a facial expression. All right? Okay. I mean, that, that, that might work between, a, you, know, you know, if you're a spouse, 
You know that person really well. You know the facial expressions really well. It might work. God's saying, use words. Use words, okay? Most likely you go to a brother or sister and try using facial expressions alone. It's not going to work, is it? Uh, Gestures. Okay? God's not saying use gestures. God's not saying, hey, just ignore the person. No, he's saying tell that person. Use words, verbally words. And so it must be discussed. You need to use well-chosen words, loving words. So as I, as I think about this, the importance of Scripture cannot be overestimated in this process. So when you go to show people their sin, you need to use Scripture. It's the Word of God that is alive and powerful and is that, that double-edged sword that can pierce. Not your words. Your words don't have power. God has power, and He will use His Word. Number four, how else should you confront? Do it privately. Privately, notice Scripture says it's, it's between you and the entire church, right? Is that what it says in the first step? Did you notice? Okay, do we need to look at it again? Matthew 18, verse 15. Is that what it says? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and everybody else in the neighborhood. Is that what it says? No, of course not. It's, it's between you and him alone. That's the first step. So the initial confrontation needs to be one-on-one, and it's not one-on-one with somebody else, you know, your girlfriend, you know, whom you want to gossip with. No, it's one-on-one with the person who needs to be confronted with their sin. And, And there's at least two good reasons for this, by the way. Number one, it may prove to be merely a misunderstanding. That's happened to me many times. Somebody comes to me, you know, Asking me, hey, what's going on? It's just a misunderstanding. Or I've gone to somebody else before, thinking maybe, maybe I need to confront somebody with their sin, and I find out the details, and, and you know, it's just, it's just a misunderstanding. I, I'm not getting it. I don't have the full picture. So you, want, you don't want to go in, you know, like the old Western movies with all the guns blazing. You know, ever seen those old Western movies? You know, just indiscriminately, you know, they got both handguns shooting everybody around them, and, and inevitably innocent people end up getting shot. That's not what you want to do spiritually speaking. So be careful, because it could be a misunderstanding. And the sinning brother may repent. So, I mean, that's the goal. There's restoration is the goal here. So it's not appropriate to go telling other people. Let me give you a warning here, though. Telling other people about the problem before going to the person is what? What does God call that? God actually calls that a sin. It's called the sin of gossip. Jerry Bridges wisely calls that one of those respectable sins that we as Christians do all the time. Happens all the time in churches. Gossip. Oh, you know. And, and it often cover, comes under the cover of being spiritual. You know, <clears throat> hey brother, would you, would you pray for um, that guy over there? You know, just, just pray for him because he's sinning and he's doing this and it comes under the cover of, oh, hey, you need to pray for him a lot of times. That's still gossip. Okay, so be careful. Number five, you need, you need to do it reluctantly. So you need to lovingly confront reluctantly. Confrontation shouldn't be something we're excited about. It shouldn't be something you're eager to do. I don't wake up every morning just looking for somebody to confront. Okay, 
I hate doing that. You should too. In fact, look what Proverbs 17, 19 says. Whoever loves transgression loves strife. I don't love strife. Hope you don't. Proverbs 23, verse 3. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife. Only, the Bible says only by pride comes contention. So if you're, if you're loving that sort of thing, you've got a serious pride issue going on. All right? So our attitude should be like the, the Apostle Paul when, when he was writing to the immoral man. He's writing this very strong confrontational letter here to the Corinthians. And I want you to see what he says here in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4. He says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So if you're not confronting somebody with, and, and, and you don't have tears, I don't recommend you do it. It ought to cause you, someone's sin in, in your life or somebody else's life should cause you to weep. You shouldn't be going there loving the opportunity. It'd be a good idea to express your reluctance, in fact, to the individual that you're going to talk to. Say, hey, brother or sister, you know, I really don't want to do this. This is painful for me, but this is what God wants me to do. You know, maybe even use a joke. Be a little, you know, kind of humor can actually be a help, you know, when in these tense situations sometimes. You might, you might say, you know, this is it. You know, I'd, 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 you know, you might say something like this. You know, I'd rather actually go to the dentist and get some teeth pulled than to confront your sin. <laughs> Just to show them you, you care. This isn't something that's nice to do. Number six, you need to confront compassionately. Compassionately. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You probably find that people would accept correction, biblical correction, and, and accept your instruction when, when you come to them a bit easier if, if they could actually see that we, we cared. But if, we, you know, you ever had somebody come to you, confront your sin, and, and it's, it's obvious they don't care about you? They really don't care about you. That's, that's hard to deal with, isn't it? Very hard to deal with. But, but if you know somebody's care, they care about you, and, and you know, some, somebody comes to me and confronts my sin, for example, and they're weeping, and, and they're saying things like, you know, I'd really, I really don't want to do this. In fact, I'd rather go to the dentist and get my teeth pulled than to do this. You know, and, and they're weeping, and they're just, it's just a struggle, and they know that you can see the care in their facial expressions and what they're saying. It, it, it's hard not to repent, <laughs> That's the way we need to strive to be. Number seven, we need to do it gently. We need to confront gently. In fact, look what Galatians 6 verse 1 says. It says, brothers, this is Christians he's talking about here. Christians, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Notice it says what it says? In a spirit of what? Gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You're to do this with gentleness. That's a fruit of the Spirit. You know, Galatians 6 comes right after Galatians 5, right? Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So 
we dare not do this without the Spirit's enabling. Otherwise, we're going to get it wrong, and we're going to hurt a lot of people. So we must recognize that a Christian that's caught in a sin, is that he's in a very dangerous, precarious position. And if you don't get this right, if you don't do this gently, you can actually make the situation worse. Proverbs 15, 1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Man, I can think of some church discipline situations where that, that was certainly the case. I'm, I'm thinking of one, you don't know who I'm talking about, so hopefully I'm safe here. I'm not going to use any names, I'm, but this is a long, long time ago. A fellow pastor and I <clears throat> were dealing with adultery. And uh, the woman wasn't, you know, she didn't want to be with her husband and so forth. And so we, we tried to go through these various steps. She, she didn't want to talk to us. Finally chased her down to some house. And, and we, we, we did talk to her and say, hey, you know, unless you repent, we're, we're going we're gonna to take this before the church. I don't care. Do whatever you want to do. Slam the door in our face. Whoa. That's hard. Those kind of situations are hard. A lot of times... Yeah, I'm not convinced we handled that correctly. Maybe if we showed a bit more love, maybe the situation would have been different. Number eight, how should we confront? We need to do it humbly. There's a danger that we need to avoid. We could become proud in the process. We could actually lose sight of God's grace. We could... We could forget that we also are sinners. We could forget that we are the greatest sinners we know. And we could look down on a person and, uh, and not, see, not see the problem. Instead, sometimes we can look at the person. We can attack a person instead of the problem. We have the wrong perspective. It just, if you have God's grace as your perspective, it just changes everything. If you, if you go into a confrontational situation and recognize, hey, I'm the greatest sinner I know... And if it wasn't, if, except for God's grace, you know, I'm, I'd be sitting on the other side of this conversation. That would make a huge difference. Proverbs 18, verse 2 says that a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Do you see what God said there? It's not wise to just go around spurting out everything that comes out of your mind. Fool makes, takes no pleasure in understanding. So a good way to begin a confrontation is by asking questions. All right, you, you need to ask questions to find out what's going on. We must give other people the benefit of the doubt. Try to put ourselves in their shoes, in their sandals, so to speak. Just think about this. What would you want somebody to do for you? Okay, if you were sinning, you need help. You've fallen, so to speak. You want a spiritual brother or sister to come to you with gentleness and humility. How would you want them to approach you? Maybe that's the way you need to go to another person when you're confronting. Number nine, be careful. Be careful. Confrontation necessarily involves words. And words are powerful things. Once they're said, they cannot be taken back. They can heal or they can hurt. Again, once you say them, they're gone forever. You, you, can't, you cannot erase 
that person's hard drive. It doesn't work that way. So once you speak words, you cannot take them back. So you need to choose your words very carefully. Oh, this is, I am so guilty on this one. It frustrates me. I have to use words. When you're a pastor, you have to use words. And I inevitably get it wrong. And I have to repent of my words, my wrong words. Or words that were said in the wrong spirit or wrong tone of voice. You know, I wasn't coming with humility, but I was coming with pride or whatever. It's oh, so frustrating. Well, here's what Proverbs says, Proverbs 10, verse 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Probably best that we say less than too much sometimes, right? Proverbs 12, verse 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Pray for the Holy Spirit to help you to be that kind of a person. To have the tongue of the wise. So your words will bring healing, not hurt. So choosing your words carefully will, number one, should involve prayer. All right, If, if you're going to lovingly confront somebody, you better go with the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to pray. You cannot do this in your own strength. And if you do it in your own strength, you will blow it. You will mess things up. You will make someone angry. You also need to take some thought, right? Obviously pray, but, but think about it. Yeah, what? <laughs> Don't just go in without thinking, all right? Uh, have some planning prior to the discussion, all right? You, maybe you need to write out some notes. You know, what am I going to say? What, what does the scripture say? These are the scriptures I needed to use for this brother or sister. Think about it. And then last of all, how should you confront? You need to do it prayerfully, okay? I've just kind of said that. Let me reemphasize that one. You need to confront prayerfully. You dare not go without the Holy Spirit. So loving confrontation needs to be bathed in prayer. The whole time you're speaking to the individual, you need to be praying in, you know, quietly in you know, your own heart. So God needs to be in that situation, okay? And if God is not in that situation then you're not doing it for his honor and his glory. Uh, interestingly enough, one of the verses that often gets taken out of context is Matthew 18, verse 20. This one's ripped out of context all the time, right? Dear little old ladies sitting in church praying in a prayer meeting, or, or others might use this, you know, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them, right? What's the context? It's not a prayer meeting. It's church discipline, <laughs> I know, people are well-meaning. But this is so true. God is there in the church discipline process. When you do it His way, He's there. He's pleased with what you're doing when you obey Him. God has to be at work in this situation for that situation to bring Him glory. If you do it your way, in your strength, He's not getting the glory. It's probably not going to work. It's probably going to fail. You might get the glory, but you probably you you'll probably lose lose a friend in the process. The pro, that person will probably end up leaving the church. You probably never see that person. If you do see that person, it's here's here's how it usually happens. You usually see the person in the grocery store, right, or the fruit and veggie market, right, and you're like, 
You know, you're, you're hiding over in a corner or, you know, you're picking up the, the cereal boxes hoping that person won't see you. And as they walk by, you know, just move the, move the right? That, you just don't want to see that person. You, you just burned your bridges, destroyed the relationship. <laughs> oh, those are uncomfortable situations. So I just warn you, you don't want, you don't want that to happen to you. Because likely is that person's not going to leave the city and go somewhere else. Sometimes they do. So use these ten words as a guide, if you will, in how to confront somebody. All right? Well, hopefully you've seen God expects you to be your brother's keeper. God expects you to be your sister's keeper. That is your duty. That is your responsibility. God commands you to do this. You are to go to the to the person who is a so-called Christian. Not to the unsaved, not to the unbelievers of this world. And there is a way which God says you are to confront. And we've, we've looked at these, these ten different words here that hopefully will guide us. So if we do this, we will have a healthy church. We will have God's blessing on our church. You will have God's blessing on your life. And you will have... Brothers and sisters in Christ will help you in the sanctification process. This is what God has designed for us. Iron, like iron sharpening iron. God's designed it that way. You're not to be an island. You're not to be isolated. That's unhealthy. It's like a, taking a coal out of a fire and setting it all by itself. What happens to the coal when you take it out of the fire and set it all by itself? It goes out. You need other coals to help keep you on fire for the Lord. Church discipline is one of those, those marks of a healthy church that God has designed in our lives. It might be uncomfortable, yes, but it's what we need. May God help us to fulfill this mark of a healthy church.